Hello, fellow Nightmare fans. I'm Sean, and I hope you'll enjoy tonight's show. So you probably won't believe my story, but here it goes. I was working in a ranger station at a small California state park, looking after the forest. It was late September, meaning the amount of hikers they were dwindling, and it wasn't like the summer where it's a great season for hiking. Yeah, the fall is great because the weather is very nice and mild, and we saw quite a few people through the summer months, but fall is when it definitely dwindles. As I said, I was doing what I needed to do hiking around and patrolling the trails and doing regular ranger stuff, checking on things and making sure stuff was safe. I stopped to eat some lunch in an open field near one part of the park where there were no trees or big rocks, so a larger clearing. I sat down and was beginning to eat my favorite, a tuna sandwich, and I literally froze with a bite still in my mouth, stopping chewing, when I see these two dark pits which were eyes, moving between tree to tree to my right. I just happened to look over in that direction and see something very large watching me. Then I hear branches and twigs snapping, confirming that what I was seeing was really there something very large and heavy moving and trying to evade any sort of sighting by me. Then I could hear deep breaths, almost like a panting or a heavy wheezing noise. After wanting no part to play in whatever this thing was, I got up, put my sandwich in its bag in my pail, and walked back off the trail. However, it had an interest in me. It was following me and was now moving briskly through the trees. I picked up my pace, and that's when everything around me fell quiet. Now it was beginning to feel very uncomfortable, like something could happen. I believe this thing followed me for a couple of miles before finally stopping as the noises around me returned. To this day, I have no way to account for what it was that I saw, and I don't want to think about it. I am 26 years old and have worked on a sea scallop boat since I have been 18 years old. During the course of my time on the water, this question brought two stories to my attention. These are not in order of importance, and I apologize for any grammar mistakes in the future. First story happened a couple years ago when we were working off the coast of Long Island, I believe. It was a little rough, but nothing out of the ordinary. It was dark and about three in the morning and everything was going smooth. On a scallop boat, you are required to shuck and do other things in between toes that happen every hour. It's basically a floating factory. I was in a shack back in the stern of the vessel standing in the back that can be closed up while you shuck. All of a sudden the wind starts to pick up and the lightning starts closer. Then you want when you are the tallest object. It's roaring and raining so hard that the rain was hitting me in the back of the shack. The boat starts listing to port and it sounds more violent than you can imagine. The door was tied off so I rushed to shut the door and use all my strength to shut it. I am by myself in here, and I have been never so scared when the boat started listing over even harder. This lasted for about ten minutes. Then it was over. Looked outside and all the gear was everywhere and a bucket that was deep inside a toad up in the front of the deck was taken out it and laying on deck. 
the position and protection where this was only led my other co-workers and I on watch to believe we indeed were just hit by a water spout. The second story was when the boat was fishing offshore sometime during March. It was shitty and cold out, and you could barely stand up. We were fishing with our starboard facing the waves because we were on a tow and producing. As time goes by it's going to sound weird, but you develop an intuition of when you are going to get hit by a wave when picking up scallops on deck. When working in the pile, you try to keep your scuppers closed it's rough because you don't want to make it harder on yourself or get your gloves wet. It all becomes very instinctual, so this night it starts to get rougher progressively. Another guy and myself are working on the starboard side and doing fine he was back aft and I was forward. I was directly next to the hatch for the fish hold. We are picking then we feel this wave coming. Like I said earlier you can tell the power somehow and guess what you're going to do. This is the east coast so the continental shelf drop off isn't that substantial as the west so typically rouge waves are few and far between. So my co-worker and I don't even try to duck or cover in anticipation. I just lift my gloves a little and assume this will be nothing special. Then the rest of it comes. We didn't have a chance. The power was forceful and slammed myself against the hatch thankfully, because or else I think I would have been washed over the port side in full gear. The other guy was washed into the other rail, and by the time I got up I could see the fear in his eyes of what just happened to him. I was more confused due to the impact of the violent wave and the cold water. Got changed and worked for another couple hours before my watch was over. That was a shit night. My name is Don Montgomery Jr. My father was stationed at RAF Bentwaters from 1977 to 1982. At the time of this event, we were living in Suffolk on the Black's Farm near Rendlesham Forest. This house is huge. We had some very interesting events happen in the home. Once we moved in, my brother started talking to an invisible friend, and he had full-on conversations. Shortly after that, I started hearing noises coming down the driveway, which used to be a cobbled way, their hoofs beating on the stones. But no horses were there. Then an old lady in white, dress and bonnet, would walk across the walled yard. Then an elderly man in a wheelchair would wheel himself down the hall and up the stairs which could only be accessed via a staircase. Our room was upstairs and our room looked out over the walled and yard. The home had entirely too many rooms for us to heat, so we would frequently close off a lot of the main rooms and just heat the main area. I had tried telling my parents that I had been seeing people that were not there, and they thought I was making this up. We were all sitting in the living room watching something on the television when something pushed down the mechanism to push down the heavy oak door. With a very loud thunk, the door opened then closed. My family were flabbergasted as we all heard walking through the living room. Then the other door on the other side of the room, the one that lead to the stairs was opened and then shut. My parents looked at each and then looked at me. Me being 16 at the time, I looked them and I said, told ya. I never saw my brother's friend, but I knew he had to exist. The whole time we lived there, we always constantly had something happening in the paranormal. It was later in 1981, 
that I found a picture of the man in the wheelchair in a class photo in an old garage. I showed it to my parents and I told them, this is the man that I had been seeing. He was considerably younger, but I will never forget that face. I still see spirits to this day. They have become a part of my life and I have learned to accept it. Now Rendlesham Forest, December 23, 1980. I was sitting on the back porch of the Black's farm. It was dark and cold. I was cleaning rabbits on the back porch that my father had shot. I was finishing up with the rabbit when a white ball of light coming from the south of the house moved north to the back field behind the house. It is completely silent. I watched it with awe, not quite believing what I was seeing. It hovered over the far field and looked to be about the size of a Mini Cooper. It cast a glow on the wet mud in the field and then seemed to land in the field. It was simply beautiful. It looked like it was pulsing. I eventually snapped out of it. I went to get my dad. I was very excited. When we came back out, it was gone. Like it had blinked out of existence. My father did not think I saw what I knew I had seen. He told me it was probably a helicopter and not a big deal. I knew what I had seen. The next day I walked out to where I thought it landed. I went back to my house, got my dad, and told him he needed to come out and see what I found. We got out there and there were three circular impressions there on the ground equally spaced out and my original set of footprints going to and from the site very muddy, and then our prints going back to the site where the orb had landed. My father was surprised enough that he called the base and reported what he had found and I had seen. No one ever came to my knowledge to check the site. Then a couple of days later the famous Rendlesham Forest event occurred at RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge. So as a kid I lived about 100 miles away from the nearest town at a house without electricity running water the works in the Colorado Rockies. This place was in the bum F middle of nowhere, and we frequently did see all sorts of wild animals. Elk, deer, coyotes, and such. Our property and a bunch of other neighbors' property bordered national forest roads, so to keep people off of our road, we had a gate about a mile and a half from our house that we drove through before we were home. This time of year, we are the only people up there, all the other homes are hunting cabins long empty by this late in the winter. Now, this was not the type of gate that you could drive around if you forgot your key. There were tons of trees all around it with barbed wire and ditches, and such so anyone wanting for off-road around it would have to basically build a new road around this gate. Well, one night my mom, brother, sister, and I pull up to the gate, and we cannot find the key, it's gone. So one of us has to hike to the house to get a spare, then walk back. Now it's recently snowed in January, and it is totally dark. Like can't see your hand in front of your face dark, and with the new snow you can't hear anything too. There are a few clouds in the sky on and off to let some starlight through every once in a while. But it's dark, and of course there isn't a flashlight either. So off I go. First you walk through about 200 meters of trees, then it opens up into a huge meadow, which then narrows back down again to trees for another 200 meters, then opens up again into another huge meadow, which on the other side of is our house. So I set out and everything seems fine, 
I'm just irritated that I have to do this. I'm like 15, 16 years old at this time and a little angsty teen that is peeved at an oldest kid chore totally not thinking about my surroundings. But then I got that feeling of being watched as soon as I'm halfway through the first meadow. That deep creepy dread that something is right behind you that you can't see which was made a thousand times worse by the light and lack of being able to hear. My instinct was run, but I knew that if there was something that was just going to provoke it. So I kept going and then stopped to try and listen and I heard a crunch crunch just out of sight echo my footsteps. Holy shit, I was freaking the F out. This time I walk a little faster and I know there is something behind me and it's probably a cat. So I just keep walking right into the second bunch of trees before it opens up into the meadow our house is in and I can feel the pressure at that point we were mind melded predator and prey and I could feel the breath on my shoes. So second clearing comes up and I know what the plan is and I book it. Thankfully I'm familiar with what to do and I scream, Mother F. At the top of my lungs and I hear our dogs bark at the other side of the meadow and I know they know what's up. I stop and get big with my coat and I can hear it, but still not see it, just outside my vision and I hear the dogs hauling ass towards me when they get there they continue right past me into the woods. I hauled ass to the house got the key and the 12 gauge and got in the 2955 tractor we used for work to head back to the gate. On my way back I saw the tracks it had cut right across the first part of the meadow and was on me from what I could guess that pit of my stomach feeling hit right when it started across the meadow. Thankfully I got back to the gate and let the rest of my family in and told them the whole story. And while that's happening both the dogs show up unhurt, but obviously in the same state as me. Not ready for a calm night of sleep. To this day I never go out into the woods without a weapon. My first name is Debbie. I'm not in a position where my full name can be revealed. I wish that wasn't the case. My encounter is brief, but it has stuck with me since. In 1997, my husband and I were in the Peace Corps volunteering to do some good in the world. We were posted in Nepal and Dalpa, one of the most remote northern areas high in the Himalayan mountains around 10 to 12,000 feet above sea level. Dalpa borders Tibet. The area was closed to tourists at the time. It is very remote, but since we were Peace Corps and stationed there, we were permitted to hike or track to rural towns to do our job. We lived mostly with Buddhist people. They were honest, hard-working, wonderful, and peaceful people. We had been on a track to conduct services to local community health care workers in very remote villages. I'm a pediatric nurse, so I would teach safe birthing techniques and care for infants and children especially for burns, diarrhea, gastroenteritis, and dehydration. We trekked for two weeks at a time, sometimes hiking above 14 to 15,000 feet above the tree line. It's very remote. The nearest village will be a day's hike in between, and the occasional tea house or lodge every two to three hours along the trail would follow the Glacier River with the occasional bridge to cross. The bridges often were just two large trees spanning the raging river or sometimes a suspended wood platform bridge. One time on our way back from a long two-week trek, 
We were hiking home, and we were still about two to three days out from Dunai, our home village. Our backpacks weighed about 25 to 30 pounds, so they're packed tightly. This was the era before cell phones, not that it would matter because even today I doubt there is internet WIFI service since it's so remote. But we had a regular camera that I'd pack deep into my backpack. My husband was in front of me on the trail. We'd been hiking for several hours following the glacier river, and to my right was the steep gorge down the mountain leading to the river. To my left, as the steep mountainside traversed up very steep, so steep one would have a very difficult time climbing hiking it. So we're trekking along, our thoughts to our own, when all of a sudden I felt my hair stand on the back of my neck and my ears started ringing. It got deathly quiet, I looked ahead, and I saw my husband still walking ahead on the trail. I stopped, looked down, and right on the dirt trail was a very large footprint that traversed the entire trail, maybe 18 to 20 inches long, much longer than a hiking boot. I could easily make out the toes, with the big toe at a flat foot bottom and very wide heel. I thought, wow, someone has gigantic feet and is flat-footed. But why would someone be out here in bare feet? Even Nepalese wore footwear when trekking, typically flip-flops, actually. Then I just froze and my heart started pounding in my chest. I knew it was there staring at me to my left. I could feel it. I sense it right next to me in the bush, maybe a few feet away on my left on the mountainside staring at me out of my peripheral vision. I had a human-like face and its eyes staring at me. I never felt so much fear in my life. I didn't make out its body because it was standing behind a tree peering off to the side. I knew if I didn't yell for my husband to come and see the footprint he would never believe me. I wasn't about to put my backpack down to bring up my camera. I was too scared and had this sense of run now. Then in my mind I heard it say, just keep going. I will not hurt you but keep going. Do not look at me. I said back in my mind, I just want to show my husband the footprint and then we will go. So I tried to yell. My voice froze. I cannot make a sound. It was so strange and I'm a talker. I barely got my voice to whisper to my husband to come back. Of course he didn't hear me, so I kept trying to yell, but I just couldn't. My husband happened to look back because I think he sensed I wasn't behind him anymore, and he started backtracking towards me. I still could barely talk and sense the Yeti to my left this whole time watching me quietly. I didn't feel like it would hurt me, but nonetheless, I was petrified. When my husband reached me, I pointed down on the path and showed him the footprint. He stared at it. Then he stared at me wide-eyed and started to look toward the Yeti and I said, Stop. We got to go now. My husband nodded and we sprinted down the trail. We ran for about 30 minutes until we felt that weird feeling leave us. I felt petrified the whole time and didn't stop trying to sprint even with our heavy packs until we felt normal again. When we finally stopped, I told my husband what I encountered, the voice and the glimpse of its face, eyes, and that the Yeti had spoken to me in my head. I never heard of mine speak until later, and then it made sense. We both were so shaken, but I'm glad he saw the footprint, or I don't think he would have fully believed me. When we arrived in the next town to stay overnight, we asked the locals if they'd ever seen the Yeti and oh wow did the stories fly.
They told us the Yeti live in the mountain and to never hike alone, and that if we didn't bother, it would not bother us. But once in a while, the Yeti would come into town and take small livestock chickens and goats, or other crops, mostly potatoes. They told us they tried to live peacefully with the Yeti, but not to anger it or the Yeti would seek revenge. Children were not allowed to go in the mountains alone. Since that time and living on the U.S. East Coast, mostly in Pennsylvania and Maryland, I'm not having any encounters. We hike the Appalachian Trail frequently, but honestly, that's fine with me. I've heard whistling sounds late at night. I've encountered bluish orbs too, but that is another story for another time. I wanted to share my Yeti story finally. Ex-Royal Navy Lieutenant here. Back in 26, the ship I was on H. York was crossing the Bay of Biscay when we found a single empty survival suit floating around. When it was first spotted, we thought it was a body, but when we put a boat out to check it out, it turned out to be empty. Probably fell off a container ship in a storm or something totally normal. Or maybe something else spooky or whatever. That was kind of creepy, but not really. We binned it almost immediately. Of course, there's nothing your average sailor likes more than gossip and exaggeration. So within a matter of hours, there were rumors sweeping the lower decks that the guys who'd picked it up out of the water had found blood, or body parts, or bite marks, or anything else someone could make up. Classic sailor rumor monitoring action. A few days later, I had one of the younger and more gullible lads 17 or 18 years old in my division asked to speak to me in private and tell me that he was scared that he'd get eaten by a sea monster if he went overboard. Naturally, I told him we'd do our best to get him out of the water before any of the local wildlife could get a proper hold on him. Job's a good un. Round about 20 years ago, I worked for the Big Boy Scout Ranch in New Mexico. Philmont. Google it. It's gorgeous. The ranch itself is divided up into little regional support zones. You have a base camp where all these backpacking hiker scouts would come in. Ages of about 14-21 sometimes with their parents, but generally chaperoned in some way, and oftentimes a mix of guys and girls. So these kids, and I use the word kid loosely, because hey, I'm old, and all you 20-somethings are kids to me. It's not an insult. It's just perspective would go through an initial training period and then be set loose on the ranch. They'd get an itinerary telling them to be at X place at Y time and then off they'd go, knocking out their 100 plus mile course over 10 days to three weeks. I have to admit it was pretty awesome as a scout. It was a grand experience and at $350 a kid for two weeks, it was pretty cheap. So anyway, regional zones of control. Scattered throughout the ranch, there were maybe 100-120 primitive camping sites. Some place to drop your gear, get water, take a dump, whatever. You might be on the trail for two, three days before you got to one of the 34-36 staffed backcountry camps. A backcountry camp had a staff of 3-6 depending on the size and activity. The activity was some sort of Old West style skill that they would then teach the kids. 
Maybe it's gold panning or deep rock mining, shotguns, burrow racing, compass and starlight navigation, whatever. I worked at three separate backcountry camps during my years as staff. This would have been the summer of 90s. There were a number of bear attacks that year, more than a dozen. There were also two mountain lion attacks that thankfully the news agencies ignored. Come to think of it, I was stalked twice, each time for more than 30 minutes. I worked at Harlan Camp, a backcountry camp with guns, specifically shotguns, full NR a certified range, and donation of four gorgeous Ruger Red Label over under 12 gauge shotguns. We'd spend the mornings teaching kids to reload bird shot shells and spend the afternoons blazing away at clay pigeons. We also had burrows. Think of them as shorter, more pissed-off donkeys. We'd name them, and then just after dinner the kids would be assigned a burrow and flog them up and down the valley in a race, and we'd watch every time and pray that the kids wouldn't get their face kicked in. But when we weren't teaching the kids, we maintained an active search area of about 24 square miles around our little backcountry heaven. We were all search and rescue trained. Occasionally, a half-crew of bewildered campers would hit our front porch and tell us that someone had fallen and broken a leg or needed to be similarly evacuated. So this is really just one story of many. Our camp also bordered the highway, and we often had weirdos try and hike up the jeep trail from the road. We'd have to corral these people and escort them off the ranch. Once at gunpoint, spooky tale starts here. So it's just after midnight, late part of the season, maybe the first or second weekend of September. Weather starting to change, the nights came earlier. The camp had finally quieted down and we'd wrapped up the last bear patrol of the evening, basically running around and making sure some dumbass kid hadn't dumped powdered Gatorade on a stump again in the hopes of luring a bear to his campsite. The bulk of the campers were asleep by about 9 p.m.-ish. On these nights, there was one lone light on the staff cabin, really just bright enough for you to find your way to the shitter and back without getting lost. No moon this night, but the starlight could still be pretty incredible. Were it not so overcast, we're sitting there on the front porch. Three of us. The camp director is inside. We're cleaning the guns. I can still remember the smell of the solvent. Big black glass bottle. We just slid the guns back into the safe, and we were locking up when it started. Screaming. Sounded like a person. Sounded like several. Women. Screaming. I've never heard anything like it before or since. But distant. And close all at the same time. I looked at my buddy, and we both grabbed our guns and reached for the emergency loads. One shell of tightly packed power that made one hell of a noise and one shell loaded with zeros and buckshot that we didn't let the kids use. We booked it out to the burrow pens, only to find the burrows not there. They had a square enclosure and a sort of long run that opened up to a small fenced pasture and a hayloft about 20 feet tall. So we make it through the gate, and the screaming is much worse. Maybe two minutes have passed since we stepped off the cabin porch. I'm in the best shape of my life at this point, but still my heart was pounding so hard I could hear it. I could feel the blood pumping in my ears, I was so on edge. We moved back into the enclosure, spread out, 
so as not to accidentally blow each other in half. The screaming changed, shifted from high pitch to something more guttural, more like a low, hoarse, raspy growl, sounded huge moving through the tree lines just outside the fence. We finally get to the burrows. They're all bunched up by the fence line. They see us and come running over, like we're part of the herd or something. They're shaking, and in the cool, crisp air, they're sweating, like they've been sprinting back and forth in the pen. The screaming stops. The whatever the F it was moves back into the tree. My buddy takes aim and fires his noise load. But this did not hasten the withdrawal of the creature. We'd packed the noise loads two months previous in celebration of the 4th of July. We'd hiked up to the ridge, and at midnight, our guns had belted fire into the sky. The thunderous rapport was reported heard from the other camps up the valley, 20 miles away, fitting since it took two days for my ears to stop ringing. The creature took its time leaving. Huge bushes shook when it made its way through them. We hung around with the burrows till dawn, took turns sleeping in the hayloft just in case. The burrows, best to think of them like big dogs, seemed overjoyed to have us there, leaping and jumping about. When the sun came up, I saw the blood. Blood on the hooves of the burrows. Blood in the pasture, blood on the fence, blood splattered on hay. Blood on our boots and jeans where we'd failed to see what we were standing in the night before. I followed the blood trail up the ravine wall that the fenced pasture backed up to. I didn't have to go more than twenty or thirty years before I found what was left of it. Big mountain lion, probably male I couldn't tell, got into the burrow pen, probably thinking he could take one down. Goddamned burrows stomped the F to death. Its rear legs were practically sheared off, crushed pelvis and lower spine twisted and exposed. It didn't react to the noise from the shotgun because it couldn't. It just wanted to get away from there before it died. My grandfather was on the USS Block Island when it was sunk off the coast of Italy in 1944. Six men lost and 951 were rescued by the other ships in the fleet. When the ship was hit, obviously the evacuation was immediate. No time to grab personal effects, just grab a life vest and get the F out. Eventually my grandfather was plucked out of the water by a marine on another vessel. Fast forward to 1966. My grandfather was working in a hangar in the Norfolk, Virginia naval base. Right as he was getting ready to wrap up his work for the day, he was approached by two men in suits. They were FBI. FBI, are you X? Grandpa, yes. FBI, were you on the USS Block Island in 1944? Yes. Were you issued a 9mm pistol, serial 12,345,678? I believe so. Minutes. Do you know where that pistol is right now? at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean as far as I know. Turns out that as the ship was being evacuated and someone grabbed some weapons, or at least this particular one out of the armory, the weapon somehow found its way to the U.S. and had been found at the scene of a mob murder the two weeks earlier in New York City. Edit. Now that I am thinking about it, their rescue was pretty badass too and worth telling. 
The other ships in the fleet sailed, full speed towards the floating survivors, then cut their engines to avoid detection from the U-boat's radar, I guess, and their momentum allowed them to drift through the survivors and pick them up. My grandfather said he tread water for hours before finally being scooped out of the ocean. Most of the guys had life vests, but they only helped keep them afloat for a little while, and they had to share them. He said he didn't have enough strength to pull himself up onto the rescuing vessel, and that the marine that pulled him out of the water was one of the largest men he had ever seen in his life. As the block island sank, the survivors heard an explosion. They were pretty sure it was the sound of the block island exploding either as a result of the water pressure on the munitions, or maybe something in the ship was still burning and caught munitions, or the ship's fuel supply. No matter the case, they were pretty sure the sound came from their sinking ship, because of the direction it came from. The German sub that hit them thought the explosion was the sound of them being hit and surfaced to assess the damage. When the Germans surfaced, the rest of the fleet blew the U-boat out of the water. I was RV camping with my Irish wolfhound, Marty, last summer. We were in an old camping ground outside of Naples, Florida. Marty wanted out around 10 p.m. that night. Not long after I let him out, I heard a loud yelping from the swamp. I immediately flooded the area with my handheld spotlight, calling out to Marty. That's when I saw an unusual creature, with eyes that glowed brilliant orange. The creature was yellowish-brown, two half-feet tall bipedal, with several foot-long spines on the back. It was hunched over Marty, sucking blood out of, of his neck. It screeched at me and ran off. Marty's neck had two fang marks as he laid lifeless. I heard another scream nearby, so I picked up Marty's body and headed home to the 24-hour vet. The vet said he had never seen this before and confirmed that Marty had been drained of blood. He mentioned El Chupacabras from his home in Puerto Rico, but said he had never seen one and thought is was a myth. 